Welcome back to Behold the Lion. Today we'll be getting back to uh, the Creed and we'll be looking at the portion of the Creed. We're actually almost at the very end, but we'll be looking at the portion of the Creed that goes, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'm joined by Rory today uh, and uh, we'll be jumping into this conversation on what we've talked a little bit about the resurrection of the dead, particularly with respect to Christ and how Christ's resurrection uh, affects uh, affects our hope. Um, but to say a little bit more about this, uh, what does it mean? I look forward to the resurrection of the dead. Um, what is this life of the world to come? When we talk, Scripture uses some interesting interesting language to refer to um, this coming hope. Some some things that are difficult to understand. Uh, is it? We might look at some of Paul's writings on this, and is it in First or Second Peter where he says Paul writes many things that are hard to <laughs> hard to understand? So, uh, but we'll, we'll uh, look at those. But thank the Lord that Paul uh, just wrote them anyway. Yeah, wrote them anyway. We'll take a look at some of those things. We'll take a look at some of those questions. Um, so to get started, actually, I want to take us back to uh, maybe the context of Jesus' day. Even in Jesus' day, there was this concept of the the general resurrection of the dead, correct? Where, where's the scriptural grounding for that, or where's the Old Testament grounding, so to speak, for, the, uh, for this notion of a general resurrection? So we, I think we did discuss this a little bit in the previous podcast about Christ's resurrection, and there are, it's definitely a more subtle theme in much of the Old Testament, especially the, the earlier portions. That said, there definitely are some references in the Psalms, in um, the prophets that seem to indicate a coming, a coming resurrection. That's a, it's not like a full-throated, clear, clear ex- expression of things in a way that no one could possibly misconstrue. But uh, clearly it's, it was enough that the Jews by Jesus' day, any, any of the Jews who truly accepted the authority of the full Tanakh, the full mm. Old Testament, Mm-hmm. believed in the resurrection of the dead. Right. Yeah, I wonder too if one of the clearest statements we can find of it or one of the uh, most grounding statements for that belief would be, say, in uh, Daniel 12, where um, uh, I believe this is an angel speaking to Daniel and saying, uh, you know, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Mm-hmm. And those yeah. who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn money to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Yeah, that would definitely be mm-hmm. one of central the... verse for that. And then once you have a c- c- that clear verse, you can definitely see hints in other passages, like in Job when he says, Yet this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Right. So, so there's this notion then that... Uh, at the end of all things, right, as you said, uh, there's this hope. Uh, I think one of the most poignant cries throughout the Old Testament is why is there not justice now? Why is there not, you know, why do mm-hmm. the wicked prosper now? Why, why, does, why is all this going on now? And the now is sort of um, there because of death, right? This, this idea, why, why is, are, are things not, if God is who he says he is, basically, why are things not fixed now, so to speak? Why do mm-hmm. things not seem to be in line with his order? And so the resurrection of the dead gives gives hope that at the end of time or in God's time, uh, there will be a 
there will be perfect justice established um, for those um, that death is not, you know, just the end of everything without a sort of um, balancing of the books. And so that was the general hope that existed. It's the hope that Martha affirms when Jesus asks her, um, uh, tells her, your brother will rise again, referring to Lazarus being dead. This is John, John 11. And uh, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now he gives her an interesting answer. And so my question here is, how does the, how does Christianity, or I suppose um, Christ's ministry, Christ's what he does, how does that affect our understanding of the resurrection on the last day? Or how does that fill in some of the um, blank space in that picture? Well, for one, Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, so that in a very real way, he he is the model of what it's what mm-hmm. it's going to look like, mm-hmm. where there's this pretty mysterious aspect to it. And we touched on this last time, talking about the resurrection, that there's a lot of this that's deeply mysterious and acknowledged to be so, where the, it's an... It's a mode of existence that is fundamentally transformed from this the fallen, um, broken context that we're in. So there are aspects in which we just won't understand it. And we can see Christ as resurrected, how he appears to his disciples um, before ascending into heaven. Like he appears among them. He seems to yeah, he seems to walk come into the room when the doors are locked. He's right. he uh is not initially recognized by the women when they right. when they see him at at the tomb. So, well, at the same time, they then do recognize him once they have the realization. So, there's this aspect in which he seems to be recognizable but different. And he shows his wounds to Thomas. So, he still has the wounds. He still right? has the wounds. It's still very much He's present with them bodily. They they touch him. They and he eats to show them that he's not a ghost, but he also is clearly, mm-hmm. uh, clearly not quite in the same state, and be able to do things that we would associate much more with the spiritual. I see. I see. I think we'll get into yeah. We'll delve into some of that uh, specifically as we look at what Paul says about the resurrection next. Uh, in terms generally, too, of uh, I want to focus on that idea of Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection for a minute, because when when Paul says, uh, sorry, when Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again at, uh, after Lazarus is dead and buried, and she says, I believe he will, um, uh, where is it? I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. He answers, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Um, And this goes on. But throughout the Gospel of John in particular, there is this theme of Christ now as the um, sort of, uh, as as the giver of life. Well, we've spoken of the Holy Spirit that way, and we can talk a bit of that role too. But as looking to Christ, believing in Christ, following Christ as the key to life, even though, um, though death may um, come for for a time um, that Christ is the first fruits of it that instead of this very distant um, th- 
this distant future uh, prospect of the resurrection of the uh, of all people at the end of time. There's instead this notion of there's this foretaste, this kind of confirmation, this um, if Lazarus can be raised, and even more so if Christ can be raised, then that is um, all the more grounds for our expectation that if God's able to do this, then he is able to um, raise us too from the dead. And Here, yeah. Here's another passage from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 26, verse 19. Um, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Mm-hmm. So that, that one's also pretty clear. Pretty clear. Uh, right. And then you have things like in uh, Psalm 71, verse 20, you who have made me up again. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of talk about deliverance, d- deliverance from Sheol, in the Psalms, which a couple of them seem to be talking more about resurrection. Well, a lot of them are clearly more metaphorical in the context of David's suffering on earth. Right. Very good. And, And so again, this notion then of this, of this general resurrection with Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection who increases our confidence in the resurrection. Um, I mean, all of this is language. All, all of these are similar to arguments deployed, right, by Paul. First Corinthians 15 is one of the most famous passages on, yes. on this topic. We can take a look over there. Yeah. So there's, there's the passage on uh, the resurrection body, passage on the general resurrection of the dead. It, it is a little long, but it might be worth to read uh, a decent amount of it. At the very beginning, just for context, Paul is talking about how how importance, how he delivered of first importance, what he also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This appeal that this is, this central message is the gospel. It is the message that has been delivered once and for all for the saints. And so to be denying the resurrection of the Mm -hmm. dead is Mm -hmm. to fundamentally deny the central message of Christianity. And he makes, he says, just gives this really full-throated warning to the Corinthian Christians that mm-hmm, people must mm-hmm. not be troubling, be de- denying this thing, because if <laughs> if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. And that's, that's right. the appeal he makes, and that if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised, because Christ is fundamental as first fruits of this resurrection is fundamentally tied up with this doctrine of resurrection from the dead. Right. That's fair. Why don't we actually read through it and we'll kind of yeah, read, so, t- read sections and discuss them. Why don't we start in verse, I think verse 12 yeah. and, and following. Um, yeah. Do you want to, do you want to start us off there? We're, yeah, I'll, I'll just start off. Um, so now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of people most to be pitied. Right. Okay. So let's pause there. Yes. So that's what I was referencing. This is a continu- continuation of the earlier part of the chapter. Right. Just show, highlighting how interconnected Christ's resurrection is 
right. with our final hope. Right. And what's interesting here too, uh, I mean, Paul's specifically responding not to people who are denying the resurrection of Christ per se as, as a singular event so much as people who are denying the general idea of the resurrection of the dead. Yes. Um, this was not an uncommon idea, even in Jewish circles in Paul's time, at least the Sadducees, for mm-hmm. instance, were known. It's definitely a, yeah. a view. As one pastor once said, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and that's the sad you see. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. But, um, right, so, so there was this notion in some circles that the resurrection of the dead just isn't going to happen. And Paul here is saying, you know, the danger of this teaching is that it just, you know, undercuts the Christian faith altogether. By, by extension, it denies the resurrection of Christ and... Uh, you know, the, the resurrection of Christ is just the ground of our faith and of our hope. So, do you want to go on? Yeah. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. All right. Okay. So here, what, again, this notion of first fruits, this notion of this prior confirmation, this, this forerunner, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, yeah, it's, it's all very intimately tied up with the plan of salvation mm-hmm. and, how Christ is the new Adam mm-hmm. through which we receive resurrection life. Mm-hmm. That is the, the antidote, the, the, the solution to our death and corruption received through our father, Adam. Right, right. So these representatives of humanity, essentially, there's a death and now there is a, a life and that life pointing to a future hope. I want to take us down to verse 35. Um, This is going to be some interesting stuff Mm -hmm. about the specifics of this resurrection. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star and glory. I'll pause here for a second. So early in the chapter, we can kind of maybe be nodding along with Paul, right? This is great. You know, Paul, mm-hmm. this is, you know, so, you know affirming the resurrection. Resurrection, Christ and, saving us from our sins. And then and you start reading, okay, there's different kinds of flesh for humans and animals and birds and fish. And you start wondering, what, what, what's... And for heavenly bodies. And earthly bodies. And it's kind of, yeah, what's what's going on here? There is an echo, though, of Christ's, of Christ's own statement that, you know, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it cannot bear 
uh, bear fruit. We'll get into a little bit of this. I think it'll be clarified, or at least the thrust of Paul's argument will become clearer in the next section in 42 on. Mm-hmm. So, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, this at least makes the direction of Paul's argument clear. All these things about different flesh, different types of bodies, essentially, is a prelude to his argument about how the body will be transformed um, Mm -hmm. at the resurrection. On the other hand, this is still a little bit confusing. Um, What's going on here with this rhetoric of transformation, this rhetoric of different fleshes and all of that? Yeah, it... And I will not pretend that I have all the answers in this passage, but uh, the general thrust of it being that there's going to be a glorious transformation where we are, this life, our bodies are just a, a kernel, like a kernel of wheat that must die, and that it will be raised glo- into glory. That I guess that's just what I take away from all of this, that there is a fundamental transformation and that we on this side of glory will not actually have a full comprehension of what this new, this other glory will be. But what we do see is that it is the solution and the, and the like just absolute destruction of a lot of the ills that we have now. So if you look at the list of like the earthly body versus resurrection body um, dichotomy, he goes, he always is putting one. It's this on one hand and then the resurrection on the other. And earthly bodies go perishable. They're, they're perishable. They exist in dishonor in verse 43. They exist in weakness. They're natural. Um, a, the first Adam is a living being. And we bear the image of the man of dust. We are of the earth. So we're dust. We're of the earth. The natural body, we exist in weakness. And we're perishable. So there's just this general weakness that leads to death, is the con- which is a condition that we're in. And that the solution is imperishable, raised in glory, raised in power, spiritual, life-giving spirit from heaven, bearing the image of the man who is of heaven. I see. I see. Okay. This makes sense. I'm, I'm still curious about some of Paul's argument in the... Uh, in lines basically 37 on um, where, you know, you can just imagine someone, you know, listening to this and taking out even like a middle school biology textbook and wondering a little bit about um, this, 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 some of this language, right? Is Paul being, what's he, how literally do we take this about, you know, not someone, yeah, not to be picky, but a kernel of wheat, does it die really? It doesn't exactly die. And 
what about this talk of different types of flesh, right? Is it, uh, what's he talking about? Is it a genetic difference he's talking about here? Is it a structural difference? Is he talking about different types of creatures altogether? What's, uh, what's, some, of, what's some of this going on? Yeah, yeah so if, if you look to his, I, I think a lot of it is very much by analogy. Mm, and right. I think this is how a lot of ancients thought about right. the natural world. Right. Right? They would see patterns so like when he's reasoning by from nature, he's not necessarily reasoning from it in quite the same way that right. we instinctively would. So when he's pointing to the seed that has to mm-hmm. go into dishonor, right. so to speak, right. to then be raised up, that like that's thinking about nature in sort of like an ethically imbued teleological way that most moderns just aren't we, used to we don't thinking think about that. we don't think like oh the seeds getting dishonored yeah. by getting foot in the what ground what about the kernels of popcorn that go into the microwave is that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so yeah. i think there's just a bit of a disconnect for moderns where we really don't think about nature in the same way and we also are really predisposed to look down our noses at any sort of pre-modern analysis of nature. Right. And, but right. I think, like, obviously, um, Paul, like, Paul isn't a 21st century scientist who's trying to talk about flesh in some sort of, like, strictly biological way that we, right. that we would naturally think about it. So when he's reasoning, like, what I naturally draw from is when he uses he uses the analogy of the kernel or mm-hmm. the seed. And then when he says different types of flesh, it's sort of like saying different types of seeds. I see. Where okay, like the, you've got the barley, you've got the wheat, you've got the millet, you've got your black eyed peas <laughs> and you've got your rabbits. You've got your blue whales. You've got the sun. Uh, they're all very different from each other. Different elements of creation. Right? And there's yeah. this sense also that in Romans, when it says that all creation yearns for the resurrection, like all creation groans, mm-hmm. there's this sense in which the final resurrection, the eschaton promises a renewal for all things. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an aspect in which all things will be made new, which will be transforming these quote unquote other bodies. While for our purposes, we are most concerned with what it will look like for us. Okay, so people definitely argue about this. It's not like there's this unified con, um, understanding, and I don't think Paul is ex- intending to explain all of it in a super clear way for us. He's giving us a foretaste. He's using these analogies that I think are helpful, but it's not like he's giving us some sort of roadmap for what all things will look like. And so, there are, I know there are many who think like, oh, there'll be a new heavens and new earth after everything's destroyed in fire. There are other people who have much more allegorical interpretations of things. And it depends on what church you're in, that which ones you'll probably be most familiar with. The more okay. allegorical versus the more yeah. literal interpretations. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, that's a good point, though, about Paul's approaching some of these things. Um, yeah, again, A... Uh, he's in a context where it was much more common to look at nature with, you know, um, sort of the the moral lens, so to speak, to Mm -hmm. think of, um, seeds legitimately representing death and dishonor uh, when they're, when they go into the earth or in some meaningful sense, as opposed to, um, how we might view our popcorn kernels. Um, yeah, which you see people, the ancients just thought this way about nature. They look at the, the cycles 
that exists is in some way reflecting a broader like broader right. um, symbolism or broader right. meaning right and in some sense the day whole, and night yeah. summer winter all of this was yeah. really significant for them Right, and in some sense that perhaps does reflect on humans. Uh, the fact that we can, they looked at nature and saw something meaningful for humans perhaps reflected on their understanding that humans were also part of a part of nature in a sense that mm-hmm. perhaps we've lost today. Yeah, that will be, we will be modeling these, these rhythms. What kind of seed do you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Garbanzo bean. Garbanzo bean. That's an interesting. That's are, an you interesting. A, are you a garban, garbanzo bean? I don't know. I'd have to think about that one. I like, I, I, I like popcorn kernel. Not for the microwave, but, you know, for, <laughs> to produce much popcorn for the days to come. Okay. So moving away from the question of seeds and, you know, flesh, I'm also curious about some of the language that gets picked up in verses 42 and following, where there seems to be... Without context, um, there might seem to be an almost Gnostic opposition of the spiritual to the natural going on in uh, some of Paul's contrasts here, uh, where he seems to contrast, you know, uh, natural and spiritual, natural body, spiritual body. Someone who uh, believes, and erroneously so, that the early Christians thought Christ's resurrection was purely a spiritual one, whatever that means, as opposed to a literal and physical one might point to uh, some of this language to show that Paul hoped for a purely spiritual resurrection. Um, I don't think that's what's going on, but how do we think about some of this juxtaposition of natural and spiritual? Um, Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it's important to note that just like uh, the ancients did not have the same attitudes towards nature as we did, the associations that they had with what is the spiritual, not necessarily the same as what the ones that we have. So when some modern theological liberal, say in the late 19th century, is like, oh, spiritual, what he's thinking is not necessarily the same as what spiritual in that sense means more like ethereal and almost like not even real. Like even there's almost real. this sense of it being metaphorical or interesting uh, yeah. if at least it takes away the power of it in a very mm. significant way um that said also it's not like the, in the ancient world there was a unified understanding of what the spiritual was so when you bring up the gnostics um they like if you look at hellenistic philosophy there are lots of different schools of thought that have pretty pretty different conceptions of things so I also don't think we can just automatically read in whatever favorite Greek school yeah, we want into right. what Paul is saying. So I think we have to read it in context of what the rest of Scripture says, first and foremost, and right. not not either our own conceptions of what spiritual means or what we even think many of the ancients would have meant. Right. So we have the example of the Gospels, and I right. think while... Um, many textual critics try to drive a wedge between Paul Mm -hmm. and the Gospels. I don't think that's a legitimate thing to do at all, given, I think, the the early Christian community. I think there's a lot of false dichotomies that are made when these communities... It's not like the church was really that big (laughs) back in the day, and these guys were all... they, They knew each other. They brushed shoulders with each other, so... The, what would have been written in the gospel accounts would be deeply familiar to Paul. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. And I wonder if again that echo we detected of Christ's own statement that you know grain of wheat you know, just indicates yeah, that. It, yeah, I think it yeah. it definitely suggests that connection. Paul was familiar with um, Christ's sayings in some in some collected form. Okay. Yeah. Even if it was by word of mouth from the apostles themselves. Right. And he talks, he starts the chapter by talking about what he's received, teaching he's received. So that's um, something to bear in mind. I do want to press a little bit on, on some of this nuance here. Even if, you know, we've talked about the Holy Spirit and the Spirit as, I mean, I assume we understood him to be somewhat different than the incarnate Son of God as a human Um now, true. <laughs> when when Paul when Paul says in verse uh, forty five that the first man Adam became a living being, a, uh, and and the Greek is like, um, well, that's this is going to be interesting because uh, what we might contrast in the English as between being, which we might automatically attach corporeality to, and spirit, which we might remove corporeality to, in the Greek is actually a contrast between suche, uh, the soul. Um, and uh, pneuma, the uh, what we translate as spirit, but as also breath, you know, living breath. And I will say I don't know enough about the. So it, the contrast is between suche uh-huh. and pneuma. Um, okay, by living being. Living being, yeah. It suche. could also take as living soul. Um, as, okay, that. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense, uh-huh. and that's reminiscent of what the Hebrew would be in Genesis, nefesh chaya, which is like nefesh is also like soul, soul chaya living. So um, all flesh is nefesh chaya, um, nafshot chayot. Okay, um, okay. So whether it's in your dog, your pet dog, whether it's the grasshoppers, whether it's birds or you, it's your, no, yeah. it's a nefesh chaya. That's interesting then. Okay, then this might take the discussion in a different, slightly different direction, where the contrast would be less between, um, you know, again, body and some kind of disembodiedness, as as between. Yeah, I haven't I haven't actually thought about that before. That actually is helpful a helpful distinction uh-huh. looking at the Greek and uh-huh, Hebrew. Uh-huh. Yeah, I actually wonder. Um, I don't know enough about the Greek notions here uh, going on. I do know in Latin there is this notion of the anima, which just means kind of. Uh, living principle you could also take it as breath of life basically but that's where we get the word animal from right anything that you know is living in that sense maybe not plants plants are a bit different but you know anything they've got their vegetative soul (laughs) as a plate (laughs) Uh, but but it's like all living things as you said are kind of these living souls in some sense they've got this anima this kind of uh principle in them the spirit i wonder how we could think of that differently um uh, I mean, I'm sure there's theologians who have gone in depth into what differences possibly in the use of the term spirit and soul, which sometimes in English we kind of switch around. But I do think, I do wonder, given what we've said about breath, that the spirit is typically that which does the breathing, so to speak, and the the soul is sort of the that breath which is received or which exists in living things. I don't want to get into too much of this because that could be um, I don't want to speculate too much where I don't have expertise. That said, 
The reason I took it in that direction is because I really do think a very interesting contrast Paul derives is when he says the first man, Adam, became a living being or a living soul. There's this notion that he received um, life, but then death came along. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now He's life-giving as opposed to being breathed upon and receiving life. Right, right. The the real con- the contrast in the Greek too is a bit built up, where you'll have the contrast in the clause, where the first one, hutoskagrafo, ginomai psuchen zosan. So it ends with the participle living, uh, uh, the first Adam. Uh, but the last Adam um, ends. So the verse ends. The last Adam is pneuma zoyo poyun. It ends on the participle zoyo poyun, which means life giving. Life giving. The I would say the thrust really is there. Um, between receiving life and giving life. Okay, that, that's really helpful because I hadn't, I've normally read it with placing more emphasis on the contrast between the spiritual versus just living being, which I guess maybe the, the directionality is more of the emphasis. Well, clearly there's a d- this contrast as well between the nature. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's good. Also, by the way, guys, the classics can be useful. But uh, <laughs> um, learn yeah. your Greek, learn your Greek, understand the Bible better. Yeah, um, but though Hebrew doesn't fall under classics too often, does not, it? Not usually, but you know that's that's the next step. You know, um, but I do I, I do think there's something very helpful about that uh, that uh, distinction, uh, and this is a comment people have often made about Christ's ministry, where in um, in our world as we know it, uh, we associate with the idea of contagion a negative valence, right? Con- death is we death death isn't contagious, but you know, well the way it's described coming from Adam, you could you could say it is scripturally, but more so disease is contagious, decay is contagious. Um, we need to continuously clean things, cleanse ourselves, sterilize things. You see that uh, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the, through Old the Testament, ritual law, right. where there's this like. Yeah. Just for, sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, go just, ahead, go ahead. Just yeah. to point out one big one is Christ's analogy of the kingdom of God being leaven, that leavens the whole lump, where you have, in the the feast of Passover, the Jews you need to go through your entire house and clear out all the leaven, get the leaven out from among you. And while while clearly in the New Testament Jesus also uses that type of imagery for cleansing sin out, there's still the sense in which. In the Old Testament, everything would make you impure. You have to, uh, the ritual, the ritual aspects of the Torah are all about cleansing things, getting the leaven out of your house, getting, not touching a dead person, not touching a leper, not, not make defiling things. And then Christ comes and he touches the leper. They are healed. He he makes the blind man see that he sends them to the priest to to be declared clean he then talks about the kingdom of god transforming everything like a mustard seed it grows and expands so it's this reversal of i think kind of like this ark you could see israel is this ark that preserves the promises of god which then go out and expand to the entire world and like a seed being planted in the ground. And yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. I wonder. Yeah. 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 That's really good. Uh, that idea of leaven. 
I was going to touch on the leper example because in the Old Testament, uh, you know, you were, one of the big no-nos is, you know, if someone has, has leprosy, they're unclean. If you touch that person or touch something they touch, possibly you'd become unclean. Now, you imagine what Christ's disciples think if they see him like walk up and like put his hand on a leprous man. Like, and, what? <laughs> what are you doing? But, but what happens here is it's not the uncleanness. It's not the sickness that's contagious in Christ's case. It's rather... It's the healing. It's, it's the, the healing. life. It, it's, it is the life. Now, there is some beautiful language in the uh, Gospels where at that point, Christ and the leper, so to speak, change places. And just because, well, because of the crowds, Christ ends up hanging outside the cities where the lepers would typically be and the leper goes back in. But, um, and we could say more on that. But this, this idea that it is Christ, no, with Christ, there's new sort of contagion, a good one, <laughs> a good one, so to speak, that there's a new kind of leaven, as you pointed out, which would typically have been taken as a negative um, image, but Christ uses it in a positive sense to speak of the growth of the, of the kingdom. There is this introduction of a new sort of, sort of contagion, a new sort of, um, a new sort of order of things. And I, I think this really is where Paul is driving um, his argument. This is the thrust of his, um, his, his uh, reasoning here, really the contrast between perishable and imperishable, the contrast between. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, clearly, um, clearly there's, in the ancient world, if you read Hellenistic philosophy, a lot of concern about corruptibility, mm-hmm. especially more in the Platonist schools of thought, where there's this... Uh, concern about uh like this the shadows we're we're living in these corruptible shadows mm-hmm. and then the, the realm of the forms mm-hmm. incorruptible you want to get yeah. make your soul as much like them as possible through contemplation and while this i think while that is not uh, a paradigm i don't think that's the paradigm that paul is really just straightforwardly working through here it definitely would be a concern in the minds of a lot of his hearers and as an educated man Saul Paul would be very aware of that fact that corruption is one of the big concerns for people like why why is it that we get that we just decay and fall back into the dust right why do good things not last basically as yeah. a just general general question and Paul will go on and say, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, does this mean there's no more flesh and blood? Or rather, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That our flesh and blood will be not disposed of, not destroyed. I, w- I would say, I mean, uh, we can talk about that that point. But I would say rather transformed, perfected, one might say. Mm-hmm. Given that basic change so that, in a sense, you could say this is the destruction of entropy. Um, yes, which is part of why I find I think it's important to keep in mind how mysterious it is because all of our experience is completely dominated by entropy, just in how we relate to our bodies, our experience in daily life, both with how we feel and how like what things we're capable of doing and the things we interact with that the destruction of entropy is something so massive that it would create a very it's worth (laughs) a body with no entropy versus a body with entropy deserves a contrast right deserves a contrast that you know 
Paul is just grasping for all the vocabulary of his day to to be able to describe. Mm-hmm. Say. Yeah. Okay. So this is interesting. Then uh, this is the sort of resurrection of the dead we're speaking of. The resurrection of of hope that we're talking about. Um, that those who are in Christ will be raised along with Christ. Um, yeah. I guess my question then, and uh, to that last point about. Uh, the destruction of entropy, the seeming, you could say the defiance of uh, what we would take to be natural laws. I mean, you see Christ again, kind of appearing here and there and going through locked doors, but at the same time being very tangibly corporeal. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something we can't quite understand. In terms of the nature of the life to come, essentially it's, yeah, it is a becoming Christ-like, both in that transformation of the flesh and this is interesting. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book Miracles, argues that some of Christ's miracles, again, in terms of this reversal of entropy, sort of represent the sorts of relationship with nature we were meant to have and, in fact, um, uh, will have in this life to come um, in, in terms of, you know, uh, as, as opposed to our, our toil being, you know, like struggle and the earth being opposed to us, in a sense, as uh, God says to Adam, there's this more harmonious relationship. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> there's so many, so many things you can touch on here. Um, but it's also so ripe for speculation that I want to be a little careful. Right. One thing that you see, like, I, well, I, I've been meditating on this. Like what, what does it mean to have a spiritual body that is yet tangible in the, in the way that Christ still corporeal in the way that Christ's resurrected body was. And it also makes me wonder about the nature of uh, the fall, right. the, the nature of how <laughs> um, from Adam came death. And I think there's just not a whole lot of information that we're given on that yeah. as to like, what what was the pre-lapsarian state to, um, to yeah. use the big word for humanity? Was it actually akin to um, nature that was all around us because there's a sense in which nature seems to intrinsically have entropy built into it and it's uh, just in its basic functionings. So is it, were we this like incorruptible, more spiritual being that fell? That is a, that is a tricky. That's tricky. so, no, that's wild speculation. And I hope that's not, <laughs> not okay, so Rory, you are definitively in. saying that <laughs> this is no, I'm starting my own church of the, <laughs> the yeah, this um, is my defining doctrine. Right. Okay. But yeah, that, that I'm sure a lot of people, if a lot of people, if they listen, would not, would find that pretty weird, but right. I, I do. Not to go full youth pastor on this, but in terms of Christ walking through doors and stuff, but also being corporeal, you know how the Flash can kind of do that and, you know, he speeds <laughs> up and goes through things, which, funnily enough, and uh, I've said this before on some, uh, I, I believe, I, I do think when it comes to the life of the world to come, um, there is there is room, not for not for, you know, frivolous speculation or, you know, trying to start new churches based on, you know, whatever I think it will be like. But rather, I think there is room for us to deploy the the imagination um, that our aspirations for a better world that we express in art and uh, in, you know, storytelling and so on uh, are, you know, uh, 
in effect expressions of hope for yeah. this world to and come. I don't think yeah. people should be afraid to think about it and meditate on it just because they're not going to be able to understand it fully because mm-hmm. there's a sense in which it is such an important aspect of our faith. And I know that at least personally, at least there have been times in my life where I just haven't thought about it very much because it seemed a little weird to me. And as I have met, tried to read the scriptures pertaining to this and have meditated on it, I've thought, oh, wow, this really, this really should be a grounding of our hope and a grounding for, yeah, for art, for literature, for this hope should lift our minds up. And the fact that it is beyond us shouldn't, (laughs) I don't think we should worry about coming up with something that's better than what will happen and then be disappointed when we get there. So... Right. I think the fact that if we if we lift up our hopes and rest them on God and right. it's not gonna yeah. hurt us as long as we right. don't yeah, cause division over stupid Right. The benevolent parent looks at their kid dreaming about all the random things they want to be when they grow up and just kinda of smiles <laughs> at it. <laughs> and maybe we can think of you know, what that as sort of uh, all our speculations about the world to come, some of them might be more on point than others, but you know, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll just have to, and it's different to see. and it's a little different with the okay. kid because he might not actually achieve yeah. anything. He might be a failure. So if That's he's, a day, <laughs> he might, he might, or say he even is successful if he's daydreaming about becoming president of the United States he, and he only becomes a moderately successful CEO like yeah there's 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 this difference where i i kind of doubt that mm-hmm. at least reasonable mm-hmm. thoughts about the afterlife if we if we try to meditate on them mm-hmm. in off like based off of scripture will mm-hmm. fall short i mean will exceed mm-hmm. <laughs> or cause us to be disappointed later perhaps uh, i'm sorry for all uh if the massive Mormon listen, <laughs> listening, uh, listenership of this podcast. I, I'm, I don't think we'll become gods, but yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe by our current standards, but <laughs> yes, which I think, sense, which but... I think is more what some of the early church had in mind by theosis. Um, then though I I'd want to look more into it, but yeah, maybe we will become version. Nah, I don't want to add <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. But yeah, yeah. Um, Though yeah. I do think there's an aspect to which I think a lot of uh, modern Protestants might not be ambitious enough in their in conceptions their... of the life to come. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before, but it does seem to me that we're much better at imagining. Um, uh, suffering and we are much better at imagining an inferno than a paradiso um and that's just because you know it's easier to tell stories about what we know already uh, i would say but um that doesn't mean we should uh that doesn't mean that's all there is and that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. we shouldn't turn our imaginations and the affections of our heart essentially to no not that we are going to um not not that you know realism in art is a bad thing you know it's insofar as but it's just that the sort of limiting oneself to a gritty realism that might not be real at all in the end. Uh, mm-hmm. um, at the same time, not, you know, careening into like this uh, completely rosy eyed um, thing. The, the, the gospel is about suffering to the utmost extent, looking that fully in the face and also the overcoming of that 
mm -hmm. overcoming of that suffering. Yeah, and I think you see a juxtaposition between that sort of gritty realism that you're referencing and then like a sweetsy sentimentalism where, oh yeah, we'll all just be like happy with all our loved ones on a cloud, like with little uh, fat baby face cherubs. Yeah. <laughs> the the putti <laughs> flying around serenading us. Like I, that just leads to that question that you brought up before the podcast of like when people critique Christian ideas of heaven as being really boring. Like, yeah. Do what? Like you want me to I've sit just, around on a cloud? Yeah. And like, what, I've just imagined, you know, imagine you die and then you wake up and you are bombarded by like this horde of little flying babies. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound like heaven to me. Yeah. The, a little horde of babies and then it's I'm like, wow, sure. I'm stuck on this cloud with a harp uh, yeah. and babies. <laughs> Do we want to go th there? We have spoken a little bit about notions of heaven as almost an interim state prior to this resurrection, which some Christians might agree with, some might not. Some Christians have believed that um, there are these intermediate states before the resurrection for the spirit, and uh, I think that is often the more mainstream view. But there are other groups who have believed that uh, you know once Christian, once you die, you are sort of asleep, and then you will wake up at the resurrection, and... which would be kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, It'd be kind of cool. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I I don't think that really does justice to some of the passage we passages we see in scripture, uh, but yeah yeah um, I I also think uh, for me because people don't really talk about it too much in a lot of circles though yeah. it's hard to say that when you're talking to a Christian audience because who knows what people really liked to talk about and <laughs> a pastor could have a bee in his bonnet and, <laughs> yeah. and that shapes a person's experience but yeah. sermon series on the sleep of the soul you know part yes of like we are now <laughs> in our 15th the week. two the, yes on this in the second year of our series on <laughs> yeah, yeah. taking one word at a time of first right. corinthians 15 <laughs> yeah okay yeah, I mean, good old Presbyterian church. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are. This is expository preaching. At least one word at a time. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's you know a slow and sweet approach, but uh, to to this question of uh, sleep of the soul versus being with. God. I think Adventists really like soul sleep. Advent Adventists likes, uh, yeah, I believe that is in uh, common Adventist belief. I think the historic... They're, they're special. I think the historic <laughs> church of the East uh, is also... Um, really? The, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, so, so some of these some of these groups that might be uh, by some considered out of the um, uh, Christian mainstream have held to that. I do think that within so, so, sort of that Christian mainstream, it's been more common to believe that the um, probably based on Paul's statement that, you know, to, it's better for me to die and to be with Christ uh, mm -hmm. would be... Um, you know, that statement, as well as Christ's promise to the thief on the cross, that today you will be me with me in paradise, there seems mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. this conscious state prior to the final resurrection. Right. This, so, so this conscious state. Now, I don't want to get into too much speculation there, but aha, so is there a spiritual state of existence apart from the body as opposed to... Um, and I mean, 
Maybe. Maybe. I mean, in terms of this, yes. To get really on a limb, <laughs> yeah. if you, oh, I've, if, if you're a, if you're into weird things, people's near death experiences are like, yeah, well it, it actually, there is some interesting stuff there as far as reports of people's like any, any sort of experiential mm-hmm. reporting is going to be a lot more dubious, especially when it has to do with these sorts of topics than obviously the word of God. Right. But there seem to be like various experiences that people have in a disembodied state, not even just from psychedelics. Presumably, <laughs> when you dream uh, too, you know. You're, yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's not something that is inconceivable, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at least in in what people claim to have experienced and in interesting. people's imaginations. So uh, interesting, but I guess yeah, I, I do think a point here, and to tie it back to the question of re- the resurrection, it's sort of an interesting tidbit from Christian history that. Uh, Maybe it's a testament, a testament to the fact that the uh, Christians back in the day took this hope of the resurrection somewhat more seriously, is that they were pretty concerned about what happened to their body in the meantime while their soul was, spirit was up in heaven, you know, with yeah. God. Um, yeah, uh, some of the, I think Augustine explicitly addresses some people's concern that what if, you know, I fall into the ocean or my body gets chopped <laughs> up or, you know, one part what? is over here and another's over there. What How's happens? <laughs> How's it all going to get put together? It's like a bad, like some of the really dumb atheist mm, yeah. critiques. What's going to happen? Yeah. What if a dog eats you? <laughs> and, you know, you'll earthworm. Be, you'll be put back together if God can create everything from <laughs> nothing. <laughs> if he can create everything from nothing, he or, can. Uh, or if he can raise up from the stones, you know, sons for Abraham, then he can he can put find your he can find your genetic material the I guess, fact that uh, some earthworms had a feast is not gonna i guess a more tricky variation get in the way i guess a more tricky variation on this is that um suppose you know uh within centuries your own uh, the matter that made up your body has been recycled to make up someone else's body and so you both have claims to the same. <laughs> this sounds like the Sadducees. <laughs> so the same particles. The, this sounds like the Sadducees question to Jesus. Which, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whose wife is yeah. this woman? Whose hand is this hand? <laughs> Whose hand is this yeah. hand? Yeah. Got ya. Yeah. Uh, I, I think God will figure that one out. That's but, quite a gotcha. But I, I, I do wonder, uh, uh, I, I do think an interesting point to be made here is that traditionally, um, this hope of the resur- resurrection is precisely why Christians have traditionally buried rather than cremated. Not that that's like a, dom- a dogmatic statement here, but, you know, just within Christian tradition, the burial was precisely this putting into the ground of the seed that you're hoping to see rise rise again, as opposed to sort of this, um, you know, reduction to ashes. Not that God can't put your ashes back together. Yeah, but, it's, but you know, just yeah. to... Uh, yeah. um, it goes back. I forget. I think. I think this is a thing. Like the the paradox of Theseus's ship, where if you uh, replace every si- you you have a ship and you replace every single part of it over time, is it the same ship? <laughs> uh, so, and we know that our own bodies today, like recycle. over our lifetime, recycle basically every single, like the entirety of our bodies. <laughs> Maybe not. I, I don't know the details. I'm I'm not a biologist, but mm. at least a very significant mm. amount of our bodies are complete is made up of different matter than it was at our birth or will be when we're mm-hmm. getting put into the grave. So the fact that 
a particular particle was integrated into our body, I don't think really has much to do with the fact of it being ours. Right. Yeah. The whole analogy, maybe we exist, like we can say a curve and a waterfall exists in so far as, you know, it's, it's sort of the, can you ever (laughs) step into the same river twice? Yeah. But uh, before we won't delve into (laughs) all that necessarily though, to end, to, to wrap this up, um, two things, one, a more sobering reflection very briefly. Um, so we've been speaking of the resurrection as a hope, the resurrection of the righteous, um, scripture also speaks, does it speak of a resurrection for those who are not counted righteous? Um, and in that case, what happens? Some Christians would believe that um, existence is, in itself is a good, and so, you know, that good will slowly um, diminish for for those people. Others would believe that, um, you know, resurrection is to a sort of a body that will not perish despite, you know, going through suffering in, in hell. Uh, how, do we, how do we think about that? Uh, the resurrection in uh, that case. Yeah, so I, I think there seem like in that passage you read from Daniel and then some of Christ's own statements, there clearly seems to be you know, the resurrection for the just and the unjust. And the sheep, you have that final judgment day where those only those who are found in Christ will, um, will have hope and that we, and we have, it, it's definitely a topic that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but we don't want to shy away from the truths that are proclaimed in Scripture. And, and I think it should only make us more earnest and more... Um, more eager for the... More eager to try to genuinely show love to our neighbors and try and sharing our the hope that we have in Christ. That <laughs> I think people... there There is a real aspect in that where people view, like hellfire preaching as some sort of just fundamentalist abusive thing Mm -hmm. when if you look at the concern that a lot of like if you do look at a lot of churches that take hell seriously you will see a lot more concern for trying to share the good news with you with people because there is that actual sense of urgency if we really do this is a real thing and i want to right i want to deliver help save as many as possible right yeah, we did have a more extended conversation on this topic, I believe, in our episode on Christ ascending to yes. the dead or to mm-hmm. hell. So, uh, directing to that, it's just it, this. What this is an aspect of the resurrection that I didn't want to just um, yeah. You don't want to over. just completely right. ignore right that there is great hope there, and precisely because of the magnitude of that hope, we want to invite others into into the same mm-hmm. into the same hope. Um, and my last question then is, with this hope of the resurrection, then. What, um, how, how does one, practically speaking, how does one live with that, with that hope? It, it can be kind of hard to, um, hard to kind of put this into practical terms or to look around at things and see everything is just a seed that's being planted for mm-hmm. a, a more glorious future. But yeah, yeah. I think for, for one, it's a enormous consolation for those who have f- friends and family who who die in Christ. Um, that's something that if, if you are blessed to have Christian family that, you know, love the Lord who then, who then pass away. That's an enormous, like, it is huge comfort. It, 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 while there is a sense of sorrow, it really, if you have confidence in this hope, it 
completely defangs death as <laughs> death where is thy sting grave where is thy victory and, and that's i think one aspect because death is such a prominent feature of human existence and so while however far people try to put it out of their minds i think for christians for the ourselves and for our loved ones in Christ, we don't have to have that fear lo looming over us. And that that does fundamentally shape how we approach different things and has fundamentally shaped how many Christians have lived their lives in the face of danger, in the face of threat, that this is the thing that gives them hope. And so they really don't care. What, what can man do to me? What, right. what can man do yeah. when the, only the Lord yeah, can, has power over your soul, as Christ points out? Right. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think the removal of fear is really something emphasized, say, in Hebrews, uh, mm -hmm. speaking of... Um, to live fearlessly. To live fearlessly. To, that most people live their whole lives in bondage to the fear of death. That's what Hebrews says. And the resurrection removes that fear. It defangs death. It uh, takes away some of that. Um, it, take, it should take away that that uncertainty that doesn't mean christians don't deal with that yeah, yeah it's still hard it's still hard but it, it's yeah. still but it, it's fundamentally changed it's fundamentally changed and this isn't just in terms of this sort of reversal of entropy it's not just about death death as in our our own death but it even gives us comfort you know what against the sense of meaninglessness that's so i mean that's touched on so poignantly in ecclesiastes and that i would say is so rampant in the human experience and particularly in the modern day what's this really going to do is this really going to last um does what i do have any meaning and the, the way paul concludes first corinthians 15 is simply this therefore uh, therefore my beloved brothers and i've read this before on this podcast just be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that in the lord your labor is not in vain this notion that and that in itself is an affirmation that given the resurrection, given that death will be swallowed up in victory and is not the end, our work really is not in vain. And that is a, that I think is a powerful affirmation that can carry us through much of daily life, daily drudgery, daily dealing with Amen. the effects of a fallen world. Yeah. And the, the biggest, like the final thing that I have to say is that the anchor of that hope is Christ. The anchor of all of this is Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection. But as, like, and this aspect, it's important to recognize the resurrection is so integral to his mission. Uh, I think a lot of people end up just thinking about the cross. And as Paul says, if Christ is not raised, we are still in our sins. That this is the sealing, the completion, the, the proof of his mission, and it comes all together. Christ's mission together is holistic. It covers all of our problems. It's, it gives a solution to death and entropy as well as forgiveness for our sins. And that the, the message that Christ died for our sins was buried and resurrected and now sits at the right hand of God the Father and that he sends his Holy Spirit um, to guide and be with us to transform our our, our hearts and lives that through repenting and believing we may have life in his name that there's the repentance and the belief which uh, allows for forgiveness and by means of christ's death for our sins and then the receiving of life 
that there is a promise of life, and that is an important, that is a central aspect of Christ's message and, and mission. That's good. That's good. Right. So we find here, um, yeah, an antidote for the sense of futility, so many experience, and a hope, a true hope, a lasting hope for um, even in the hour of our death. So, yeah, um, we'll <laughs> we'll end on that. I think, um, and yeah, uh, surprisingly, we've covered most of the all of the Nicene Creed. Um, it took a little bit. It took a little. It took a little while. There, yeah, so we'll be quite back. a few topics yeah, in there. We'll we'll get Joel back on here, and we will talk. We'll we'll close this. We'll we'll put a bow on it. We'll look back on it. Uh, we'll talk a little bit, maybe even about the word "Amen," because that's how the creed actually ends, <laughs> and uh, what that means. Um, and look back on some of the um, key points, some of the highlights. Um, Perhaps we'll the only that. Hebrew word in the entire creed. Yeah. Well, we'll close with that. Um, and so we'll be, we'll be back with that next time. Thank you for tuning in. If you have uh, ideas or insights into what the life of the world to come will definitively look like, please contact us. And uh, <laughs> yeah, um, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, tune in next time for more on Behold the Lion. But only canonical texts, please. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no new text of scripture. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, we'll be back next time.